From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. All right, welcome to EW10's Open Line, and you may be wondering what my voice is doing on the radio at this hour. This is Dr. David Anders. I am usually hosting Call to Communion from uh, 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time on EWTN, and then I pack it up and leave, and I uh, I usually pass the, the Open Line host in the hall, particularly on Wednesdays when that's Father Mitch. He and I walk past, and he tips his, his rather large cowboy hat in my direction, and off I go. And on Thursdays, it's generally Father Brian Mullady who is sitting in this chair, or at least virtually in the chair. But he is off doing priestly things today, and so I was asked to fill in. So you've got me, Dr. David Anders, on EWTN's open line. But if I, if I mess up and I say called to communion, you will forgive me, because I've got that drilled into my head now after these number of years. But the number to be on the show is one 3986 and while Open Line is, in fact, open, and you can ask questions on any topic related to the Catholic faith, my own particular area of expertise is dealing with questions from non-Catholics about why they're not Catholic. So I would you know, encourage you to ask any question you like, but particularly if you're non-Catholic, you have a non-Catholic friend or relative, what's stopping them from becoming a Catholic is always one of my favorites to get into. So we've, uh, we've got some calls left over from the last hour from Call to Communion, and I'm happy to jump right in and get to those, because some people have been waiting a very long time, like Paula in Omaha, who's been waiting for over 20 minutes. Paula, thanks for waiting. Welcome to EWTN's Open Line. Thank you, Dr. Anders. And I love your show, whether it be on the radio or on the TV. Well, thank you. It's always very informative. My question is about the Apostles' Creed. It says in there that after Jesus died... He went to hell and rose again on the third day. Now, I know no one knows, can read Jesus' mind, but do the theologians have a idea of why he went to hell for absolutely. three days or however long absolutely. it was? Absolutely, absolutely. We sure do. Yeah, I really appreciate the question. So this is what's referred to as the harrowing of hell. And it's celebrated in iconography. You can go look up the scene, the harrowing of hell, and, and you'll see Christ descending to the dead. And the consistent uh, Catholic teaching is that Christ descended to the dead, not the hell of the damned, not the hell of the damned, but the abode of the dead, to rescue the righteous dead who were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. So, you know, we're talking Abraham and Melchizedek and Moses and Isaiah and the prophets who were awaiting the coming of the Messiah. Now, there is, there is another aspect to this teaching, um, that was, of course, very common in Christian antiquity, but uh, but uh, we we don't find it quite often as articulate articulated as often today. And that is the idea that Christ, uh, by his death, confronted directly confronted the powers and principalities of the world and made a spectacle of them by triumphing triumphing over them by the cross. And that in that in dying and rising to de- uh, from the dead, that Christ confronted death and hell and sin, and the devil, and that he defeated them. And so you can find in some of the fathers this image that's sometimes used of Christ is like a, a, a bait, a kind of his, his humanity is like 
the bait that you would place on a fish hook, and his, his divinity is like the hook, and the devil takes the bait. And, uh, and of course, in his resurrection, Christ uh, rips open the devil and death, as it were, and, and, and defeats them. And it's, you can take that language literally, you can take it as a kind of metaphor, but in, but in either event, that idea of Christ victorious over the forces of evil is another aspect of this teaching. Again, very prominent in Christian antiquity, brought into prominence in the West uh, by the Lutheran, the Swedish Lutheran theologian Gustav Olein, A-U-L-E-N, who wrote a very celebrated book, early 20th century, called Christus Victor, trying to resurrect in the West this doctrine of Christ's defeat of the evil powers by his death and resurrection. Uh, and that's, that's very prominent in, uh, in Eastern Catholicism and Eastern Christianity. So, for example, the, the, the Saturday night, uh, Holy Saturday Vespers service, according to the Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, actually places a complaint in the mouth of Hades. It has Hades personified. Uh, basically crying out, you know, here comes Jesus, he's defeated me, you know, this kind of language. And uh, how should we interpret that? How should we live that in our own lives? Well, uh, I think there's an application we can make, and that is that we ourselves are in confrontation every day with the evil powers of death and hell and sin and the devil, and we can remember that, uh, that our captain and our chief and our Lord has defeated these powers and given us the power to defeat them in our own lives, we who have been joined to his death in holy baptism and raised again with him to new life. And so it's a beautiful teaching of our Catholic faith, this doctrine of the descent into hell. So thank you so much for the call. Appreciate it. The number to be on open line is 1-833-288-3986, 1-833-288-3986. Let us go now to Ralph in Overland Park, Kansas. Ralph, welcome to Call to Communion. Thank you so much. God bless you. Um, I was, uh, as I told the screener, I'm listening to your conversation with that, it sounded like a educated gentleman about the miracles in the books of Acts. And after you ended the call, it, a question came to my mind is, uh, in, your, in your opinion or mind, and uh, as a, a theological person, Catholic theological person, is there a relationship between the parsity of miracles today and the, or the rareness of them, the rarity, and our collective faith? Because it makes me think of that verse where Jesus says, or it said, he said, that he could do nothing there in that town, I think it's Capernaum, uh, because they didn't have faith. And it makes me think of that rhetorical question, I think it's rhetorical, he asked, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? And it, I can't help but think that the frequency of miracles in St. Francis correlated to the amount of faith in those people. Right. Am I missing something? Right. Yeah, I appreciate the question. So you, you put me in mind of a funny story that I'd like to tell. Just It's a little bit of a tangent, but I'll, and I'll, give it, I'll get to your question in, in forthright. When... Um, here in Alabama, we keep track of our extended relations, and I have a second cousin once removed, believe it or not, I actually know that, um, who, uh, who I'm fond of. And when he was a little kid, his mother was reading him the story of the Exodus. And, uh, and he looks at his mom and he says, uh, Mom, I, you know, it, I think that God did more miracles back then than he does today. And his mother says, well, you know, m m maybe, but, but, you know, he still does miracles today. And 
my second cousin once removed says, yeah, but I think he did more of them back then. And, uh, and his mother says, well, you know, God, God worked through miracles then, but he, you know, he also works through people, and you know, he works through people, not, not just through miracles. And uh, second cousin thinks about it, and he says, well, you know, I think God works through people more today and through miracles more back then. Mama says, well, um, maybe, maybe. Second cousin says, uh, Mom, does God know that makes him look lazy? Which I thought was a great story. Anyway, so the question, does God do fewer miracles today? I don't know that. I don't know that. So clearly, in the accounts in the book of Acts, the miracles that are witnessed by the church surprise them. They see these things done by the apostles, and they it's not their everyday experience. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been awestruck by them. Uh, personally, me personally, I don't deny the existence of contemporary miracles, but I am highly skeptical of claims to the miraculous, and always have been. Well, no, I hadn't always have been. I used to be naive about it, but I've, I've grown very skeptical about it. And the reason I have is that I've seen so many spurious claims to miracles. I mean, I've been in church meetings where I've seen people, you know, hoot and holler and jump up and down and thank God for the miracle, and it's patently obvious to me that the person in question is, you know, every bit still as much in a wheelchair or walking on crutches or blind as a bat or whatever it might be. And I'm looking at everybody around me going, thank you, God, for this great miracle. And I'm saying, is, am I the only one in the room here that has noticed that nothing has happened? And uh, there's a, you know, there's a kind of uh, obsession, a kind of fascination, a profound desire uh, to witness a miracle, to validate to ourselves that something is true about the religious quest that's, that's outside of our own interior life. And, uh, and I honestly think that kind of craving for miracles, and this is, look, this is my personal opinion, um, is a kind of dodge from the real pointed issue of the religious life. Uh, you've heard me say before, Father Emmerich Vogt, I heard him once say that uh, religion is for people who are afraid of hell and spirituality is for people who've already been there. And in the book of Romans chapter 7, Paul describes the dilemma of uh, the existential dilemma of mankind, which is that I'm at war with myself. Uh, the law of my mind against the war of my body. And, and the real goal of the spiritual life is not, you know, to move mountains or to levitate, but to overcome my passions, uh, you know, the vagaries of my emotional life, uh, to be able to love God and love neighbor. I'll come back to that thought after the break. one 288 to be on EW10's Open Line. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call one 288 ewtn That's one 288 3986 Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Welcome back to EW10's Open Line. I am your fill-in host, Dr. David Anders. The number to be on the show, 1-833-288-3986. With news from EW10's Vatican Bureau, you can watch all the important events from Rome, even if you don't have access to a TV using the latest technology. 
We've made it possible to watch the latest news from the Holy See, all delivered directly to your home via live streams. Watch live on EWTN YouTube and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So we were talking about the frequency of miracles or infrequency of miracles in the New Testament and contemporary life on the last call, and I want to share a quotation with you from uh, one of my favorite 19th century American philosophers, uh, not a Catholic, Josiah Royce, friend of the famous William James, and in his book, The Sources of Religious Insight, Royce says something that I think is profoundly true, namely that the quest in the religious project, the desire the, that lies at the heart of all religiosity, is the ideal of the triumph of our reason over our unreason, the ideal that the reign of caprice ought to be ended, the wounds of the Spirit ought to be healed. In the midst of all our caprices, yes, because of our caprices, we learn the value of one great spiritual ideal, the ideal of spiritual unity and self-possession. And if you have ever read Augustine's beautiful biography, autobiography, The Confessions, you remember that passage where Augustine and his friend have, have uh, they found a copy of The Life of St. Anthony by Athanasius the Great, basically on the coffee table in the house they're visiting, and they read about the life of St. Anthony, and they, they, they see how he overcame the temptations of the flesh, how his, uh, his temperance and his fortitude and his dispassion seems to flow from a supernatural source. And Augustine, for all of his, you know, Harvard PhD education, uh, the fourth century equivalent, uh, couldn't attain the victory over his own interior life. And he just felt utterly dissipated in comparison to this illiterate peasant who had triumphed over the passions of the flesh in the desert. And he says, what is, you know, what is, what is it with us that we, for all our learning, are groveling in flesh and blood while these men in the desert mounts, mount the heights of the contemplative life. And, of course, it was the person of Christ that made all the difference. And that was his motive for becoming a Catholic, ultimately, was he wanted to be liberated from the war within his own body, the war with his own members, what Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. And my particular difficulty with contemporary claims to miracles, particularly as they occur in movements and sectarian groups, sort of make the claim to miracles front and center of their practice of Christianity, is it seems to run so often flat contrary to the ideal that Joyce and Augustine so brilliantly articulate, namely the triumph of reason over unreason and of the unity and self-possession over our caprices. And my own personal experience with the, the miracle passion, the miracle fanatics, as it were, is that they, they tend to fall into the opposite error. They tend to fall into a kind of frenetic, irrational um, uh, uh, irrationality. Um, well, that's redundant. A sort of uh, frenetic irrationality. Um, you know, uh, imagination and and uh, and passion running wild. And I've just seen that way too often. It's made me increasingly skeptical of contemporary claims to miracles. Not that I deny that they occur. Um, and when I you know when I look at the, the history you know, throughout the centuries, I'm well aware of the miracles of the saints, and it's a dogmatic teaching of the church that they occur. But that doesn't mean I, that I can't apply, you know, critical methods to the study of hagiography and, and you know, sift and weigh them. So all that is to say, I, I can't really make an assessment about how frequent miracles were in the first century or the 10th century or today. And I wouldn't necessarily say that people today have more or less faith. Maybe they have more or less credulity than people in other centuries. Miracles happen. Miracles happen. 
I'm not sure how frequently, I'm not sure how rarely, and I'm not sure how to how to draw that comparison to past ages. That's my answer to that question. All right, thanks for the call. The number to be on the show, one 888 All right, let's see. Next up is Joseph in Missouri. Joseph, welcome to, I started to say call to communion. Welcome to Open Line. Um, hi, Dr. Anders. Thanks for taking my call, and I appreciate your time. Uh, I really enjoy your show. Thank you. So my question is regarding what I guess I might call the mode of experience in a spiritual state. Um, so when we die and we hopefully go to heaven and experience a spiritual existence prior to the resurrection, I'm having a difficult time kind of imagining the mode of experience since we're these embodied creatures. And so everything we experience is through our senses. You know, we see, we hear, we smell, we taste. And so when I imagine being in a state where we don't have a body, this kind of intermediary state before the resurrection, I'm having a very difficult time imagining what kind of experience that is and Will we see even though we don't have eyes and hear even though we don't have physical ears? Or, or how do we experience in the spiritual state? Um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. And you are not the only person to have this question. And, of course, at the end of the day, Paul's admonition is apt. He says, I has not seen, ear has not heard, it has not entered into the heart of man what God has in store for those who love him. And so, at one level, we ultimately do not know. Um, Now, um, it's not top of mind. I haven't read it in a while, so I I don't want to go off too deep in this tangent because I I don't want to misspeak. But if uh, you—St. Thomas talks about this specifically, and in two places. He does talk about the condition of the blessed in the resurrection, but he also talks about the mode of angelic knowledge. And so you're going to find that in the Summa Theologica, the first part, question 55, articles 1 to 3. And so, um, again, I, I don't want to go through it here because it's a little pedantic, and, and I, I just hadn't done the research in a while, and I don't want to misspeak. But it, this is a specific topic of inquiry for scholastic theologians, and Thomas, of course, the great authority, Summa Theologica, Uh, Part 1, question 55, articles 1 to 3, he specifically talks about the mode of angelic knowledge, which is a disembodied mode of knowledge. And then that becomes a kind of paradigm that you can apply to the separated souls, uh, the souls before the resurrection of the body. So some things we we can speculate about, that uh, you're right, our mode of knowledge now is always, and Thomas calls it, says this, he says, always through phantasms, and the phantasm is the is the interior representation of the sensorial experience. And so it's the composite sight, sound, touch, smell, taste that we have of a particular concrete entity of a substance. And as that's represented to us in imagination, however that is presented to us is what we call a phantasm. And then from the phantasm, we can abstract universal properties like, you know, square or round or big or tall or green or what have you. And, uh, and that we can have intellectual knowledge of that. And so, um, you know, we're not going to have a phantasm. We're not going to have any kind of sensorial knowledge of God. Uh, we'll have some kind of conceptual knowledge, perhaps. Well, we won't have conceptual knowledge. What we'll have is intuitive knowledge, all right? And the, the scholastics distinguish between intellectus and ratio. And ratio is discursive knowledge, the kind that you could have, you know, by demonstration, syllogistic knowledge. 
Um, and intellectus is more the kind of intuitive knowledge of a truth once received and assimilated. And so there are different modes of knowledge that we can talk about, even in our current rational experience. And the knowledge we have of God will be more intellectus and less ratio, and it'll be intuitive rather than empirical or reasoned, <clears throat> but it'll be complete <clears throat> and utterly satisfying, and it'll be kind of penetrative, participatory knowledge that satisfies uh, all of our longing and all of our aspirations. Uh, you know, we have no phenomenal experience of what that will be like, because there's nothing in our experience like that now, and that's why you're hasn't heard and I hasn't seen, hasn't entered into the heart of man. But if you want, again, a scholastic distinction, a deep scholastic analysis, Thomas does talk about these things. So I appreciate the call. Thank you. Number to be on the show, one 888 Let us go now to, uh, ooh, Noreen. Sorry, Noreen, you've been waiting a long time, 35 minutes. Noreen, welcome to Open Line. I have a couple things to say and ask. So when... I got saved a long time ago. Um, it, it was such a big deal in my family. It brought a lot of people to God. So then when I converted to Catholicism, it really shook my family because they became really involved Christians and strong Christians. So it, it, it was kind of... Like, what? Noreen became Catholic out of all things? So it made them question it. And my one nephew, I, I told him, you know, it's the fullness of God. So later on, he asked me, he said, and Noreen, can I have the fullness of God at my church? And I felt bad for him because he just, graduated Bible college, and her family was real strong into, you know, Protestantism, and his family was, too, and I felt like if he started going Catholic, he would get so much grief. Sure. Sure. So I I think I can speak to that, and I really appreciate the call, Noreen. Thank you so much. So as Catholics, our position is that the Catholic Church was founded by Jesus— and it's had a continuous historical existence, guaranteed by his divine authority and held together by apostolic succession and the sacraments for 2,000 years. And so that's our motive for being Catholic, and that, that within the Catholic Church we have all the truth that God revealed for our salvation and all the means of grace. But we also hold that there are elements of Catholic faith and elements of truth and sanctification that exist outside the formal boundaries of Catholicism. So, you know, you take your Protestant relatives, for example— well, they don't have all of Catholic tradition, but they have some of it. Here's a part of Catholic tradition that they've laid hold of, the canon of the Bible. They have the Bible. The Bible's a Catholic book. The Bible is a product of Catholic tradition. They don't have the rest of Catholic tradition, but they got the Bible. That can be, for them, a means of sanctification and redemption. And while it is better to have all of the available objective truth, it is a fact that a particular individual who is has access to only a portion of the truth may make better use of that portion than a catholic does of the of the whole caboodle so you know there are plenty of catholics who have all the means of grace and all the truth of the catholic faith at their disposal but who live in perpetual mortal sin and who go to hell being catholic did not save them 
Whereas, you know, their Baptist uncle, who doesn't have the whole truth of the Catholic faith, uh, you know, maybe he maybe he's like the Baptist preacher that I knew about who could only preach on one verse, John 3.16. But he lays hold of the one truth that he's got, and he lives it with charity, you know, if also some admixture of error. But his ardor and his charity are such that he is more savingly united to God than the Catholic. That can also be the case. And so, as Catholics, you know, subjectively, we should never be in a position of arrogance or bigotry with regard to other Christians, because Jesus tells us, take the log out of your own eye before you take the splinter out of your neighbors. Thanks for the call. 1-833-288-3986, the number to be on open line. We're going to go to a quick break. Be back in a couple of minutes to take your calls. Thank you. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Welcome to EW10's Open Line. I am your fill-in guest host, Dr. David Anders, normally associated with Call to Communion, but here for two straight hours in a row to answer your questions about the Catholic faith at 1-833-288-3986. Let us go to Lily in Houston, PA. I didn't know there was a Houston, PA. Uh, Lily, welcome to Call to Communion. Hi, it's just Houston. <laughs> oh, it's not Houston, Pennsylvania. It's my call screen. No, Houston, Texas. Okay, great. I, he, he put PA on there, and I was like, I only know of one Houston in the world. What is this Houston, Pennsylvania yeah. business? Okay, great. Yeah. Houston, Texas, he just corrected okay. it. Very good. Thank you. What yeah. can I do for you? Okay. Well, Dr. Andrews, my question is about Lutheranism and what they believe when they have um, their communion services. Yep, yep. Because I'm dating, a, I'm dating a man. I'm Catholic. I'm dating a Lutheran man, and he thinks he has the real presence in their communion. And yes, he does. I don't know what... Oh, I thought they did not. They don't. The no. Yes, he thinks one. that. Yes, he thinks he that. Thinks, he does not yeah. have it. He does think he has okay. it. So what's the question? Well, I'd like I'd like to know how to explain to him that he's mistaken without sounding pompous and yeah, offending sure. him. Yeah, sure. So, uh, well, you're not going to do it without offending him. But I can tell you what the Lutheran position is, and I can tell you what the problems with the Lutheran position are, and there are several. <clears throat> so... Luther himself was very adamant about the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And in fact, this became a sticking point in the Reformation because there were other Protestant reformers, in particular Ulrich Zwingli of the Swiss Reform, that did not hold to the doctrine of the real presence. And Luther himself thought that the real presence was so important that it would be, let, it'd be better to let all the Swiss go to hell than to give up on this doctrine. And he literally put it that way. He said, you know, one of us is with God and one's with the devil, and I'm with God and you're with the devil, because this is what Jesus said, and therefore I believe it. Luther also said in one place that even if he had no scripture, that the witness of the entire Christian church for 1,500 years throughout the world would be sufficient to establish, the, establish this article of faith, namely the real presence, and that it would be stupid and foolish for any Christian to go against the consensus of all the Christian faithful for 1,500 years throughout the world. Would that Luther had been more consistent in applying that principle, right? Because on other doctrines, of course, he deviated from that wildly, but when it came to the real presence, he was very adamant about it. The major problem with Luther's doctrine of the Eucharist 
was not, obviously, his belief in the real presence, although he conceived of it differently from Catholics. It was rather his doctrine concerning the sacrifice of the Mass. And Luther considered the sacrifice of the Mass to be the greatest blasphemy and the enemy of the truth and a, a tyranny of the Pope that had overturned the gospel and, and, and thrown Europe into theological confusion and mayhem that he thought presaged the Antichrist and the end of time. I mean, he had the most dastardly things to say about the sacrifice of the Mass because, according to Luther, the sacrifice of the Mass is a work and something that man offers to God by way of merit, and of course, Luther's doctrine of justification held that we can do nothing, we can offer God nothing, that there is no merit in Christian life whatsoever at all, that God never smiled upon his man, a man for his works or his charity or his virtues, not even if those were offering the body and blood of Jesus. So nothing meritorious about the Mass such that it could be offered to God as a sacrifice. And of course, the Catholic position, in contrast, dogmatically defined by the Council of Trent, is that the Mass is irreducibly and always a sacrifice first and a sacrament second. And so the Catechism of the Council of Trent declared that the Eucharist is two things. It is a sacrifice and it is a sacrament, and the difference between the two is very great. And so we have to distinguish the real presence of Christ that we receive as the sacrament and the real presence of Christ that we offer to God as a sacrifice. And it was the latter rather than the former that Luther adamantly objected to. Now, because he objected to the doctrine of the sacrifice of the Mass, he also objected to the Catholic sacrament of ordination. Because the purpose of ordination in the Catholic Church is to ordain men as priests, i.e. as sacrificers, because the office of a priest is to offer sacrifice. And because Catholics conceive the Eucharist as a sacrifice, we conceive the need for a sacrificial priesthood to offer the sacrifice, and ordination is the right that configures a man to offer that sacrifice validly and worthily. So because he rejected the sacrifice, he also rejected the doctrine of ordination. Because he rejected the doctrine of ordination, he vitiated it in his own case, or at least the case of his own community. And so Lutheran pastors uh, are not validly ordained Catholic priests, and their bishops are not validly ordained Catholic bishops. Therefore, they do not have the power to consecrate the Eucharist or to offer the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And that is the key point of difference between Lutherans and Catholics. So, you know, can you convince your Lutheran friend that the Catholic position is the correct one? <clears throat> well, certainly not overnight. Uh, but, but those are the critical differences. And I think he would agree, if he's a well-formed Lutheran, then he has been taught that the Catholic doctrine of the Mass is a blasphemy and that the Lutheran doctrine is the right one. That's definitely how he's going to have, have understood it. So, you know, uh, you, know you, can, you can be grateful that you have certain things in common, and you can be respectful and very clear about the things that you don't share in common. Um, and, uh, but the key issue is not the real presence. The key issue is the sacrifice of the Mass, and that is what's at issue in the question of the validity of Lutheran ordinations. They do have a different doctrine of the real presence. We hold to the doctrine of transubstantiation. Luther didn't like that language because it was drawn from the discipline of Aristotelian philosophy, so he has another way of conceiving the real presence. Um, but again, the real difference, the, the most substantive difference, I should say, is with the doctrine of sacrifice. So thanks for the call. All right, number to be on the show, one 888 Let us go now to <clears throat> Nick in Florida. Nick, welcome to Call to Communion. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, 
I would like to know that, um, so if I approach a priest for a blessing, if I'm under mortal sin, is any grace transferred to me in that blessing? Uh, <clears throat> great question. So uh, Catholics distinguish different kinds of grace. There's what we call sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace is the grace that unites your soul to God in charity. It is the grace that turns your heart from sin to, to righteousness. It is the grace that reconciles you to God. And so the soul in, in sanctifying grace is in a habitual condition of being turned to God savingly. So if you die in the state of sanctifying grace, you will eventually make it to heaven. Um, now, uh, to be in mortal sin and to be in sanctifying grace are incommensurate states. You cannot be both of them simultaneously. All right? You're either in one or the other. Uh, can a priestly blessing move you from the state of mortal sin to the state of sanctifying grace? Not intrinsically. Not intrinsically. Not ex opere operato. What do I mean by that? If you're in the state of mortal sin and you go to baptism or you go to confession, the valid sacrament worthily received will necessarily move you from the state of mortal sin to the state of sanctifying grace. A priestly blessing does not have that power. However, a priestly blessing could be the occasion for you to make an act of perfect contrition, which is another way of moving yourself from the state of mortal sin to sanctifying grace. If you are genuinely sorry for having offended God, like King David in Psalm 51, you can rectify your life in an act of perfect contrition. So I, I can imagine a situation in which a priest, you know, prays, you know, Lord, please grant this person the grace of repentance. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit enlightens your heart, and you're struck to the core and contrite for your sins, and you cry out to God for mercy, and you're reconciled. But the prayer of the priest does not have that power intrinsically to make it necessarily happen. It would just be the occasion, but not the sufficient cause of that conversion. Uh, it's also possible the priest could play a blessing and you could remain resolutely lodged in mortal sin. Would it then necessarily be the case that no grace occurred? No, because there's another kind of grace called actual grace. Actual grace is not a habitual condition. Um, uh, you know, think of it like um, the, you know, the, the telegraph operator who is listening for that beep, 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 beep coming from the, other, from the other line. You know, it's a call uh, in the spiritual sense uh, that, uh, that is there to maybe prompt your heart, to move your considerations, to, uh, to prod you forward in the spiritual life. And it can be resisted. It can be resisted. Actual grace often comes before sanctifying grace. Well, it really always does. Um, sort of, uh, you know, God calling us to the state of repentance. Um, but, uh, but we have to cooperate in order for sanctifying grace to do its work. The priestly blessing could certainly be an occasion and even the cause of an actual grace in our life uh, that might or might not result in our conversion to the state of sanctifying grace. Thanks for the call. Number to be on the show, one 288 3986 all right, let's see. Let's go to D in St. Louis, Missouri. D, welcome to Open Line. Thank you very much. Um, I'm a recent convert uh, from uh, from the Baptist faith. Uh, 
Um, I felt a movement to become Catholic, and I'm in the process of still learning my faith. Um, I I have a question. It's just not something that I'm used to. Maybe it's because I was entrenched in the Baptist theology for so long. And the question is, is why do Catholics pray to Mary? Um, I'm used to just, you know, bowing my head and praying to God or praying to Jesus to forgive my sins. Why do I need somebody to uh, be an intermediary? Absolutely. So let me do you one better and, and address not just why we pray to Mary, but why we pray to the saints in general. All of them, and there's lots of them. So, you know, I can pray to St. Francis or St. Augustine or St. Thomas or St. Catherine or whoever, you know. Mary, too, but I can, I'll pray all kinds of saints. Why do we do this? So, D, when you were a Baptist, did uh, you guys ever have prayer meetings? Yes. All right. In those prayer meetings, did you ever pray for one another? Yes. Um, you ever have somebody come by and maybe place a hand on your shoulder and say, uh, Dear Father God, we we pray for our brother D, and he's uh, he's under mighty struggles, and he's got big problems, and he's got, you know, surgery on Friday, or test coming up, or, you know, major loss in his family, or right. challenge in his work, and we just pray, Father God, that you'll comfort him and strengthen him and give him the wisdom and the grace. You ever have somebody pray like that for you? Yes, sir. Why did you need them to do that? Why can't you just do that yourself? I guess, the strength in the community. Bingo! Bingo! You laid your finger right on it. So, you know, God could, of course, have created us all hermits, right? He could have made us all hermit crabs and given us our own shell on our back and sent us out into the world to hunt and gather on our own and never have any kind of interchange with any other human being. And we could have all had a personal relationship with Jesus totally irrespective of any other human being. That's not how he did it. You know, God's very nature is communitarian. I mean, this is what the doctrine of the Trinity tells us, that God is not just an isolated monad. He is a community of persons. And the nature of our salvation is such that the love that unites us to God is a love that is experienced in and through the society that is the body of Christ, the community of Christians. And when God tells us to love God above all things, well, we love God in loving our neighbors. And St. Augustine said God gave us the church so we'd have people to do good to. And, you know, we can help one another materially, but in the spiritual life, the way that we confirm and express and, in fact, grow our love for one another is primarily in and through this work of mutual prayer and intercession. Not because it's somehow necessary to God, but that it's terribly useful to us to change us into the likeness and image of Jesus. I mean, the character of Christ is that he loves his bride, the church. And we're saved by being conformed to Jesus' likeness and image. And so how is God going to save us, making us people that deeply care about one another— if the most intimate parts of our spiritual life are fundamentally disconnected from one another. No, rather, the, the means fits the goal, right? The, the means fits the end. The end is that we be transformed in charity. The means of mutual prayer and intercession is the way that God uses 
to transform us into specifically those kinds of people, just like your Baptist church. People would come by and lay hands on you, and what a comfort it is, what a strength, and also particularly if, you know, if, if uh, you know, if Brother Joe, you know, who's a deacon for the last 50 years, and everybody knows he's a fine, upstanding gentleman, and when he prays, things tend to happen, and you just, you know, I feel like I want Joe praying for me. If stuff is going down in my life, I'm going to pray, but I, I really want to get him on the prayer chain, right? That sense of confidence we have in the holiness of life of Brother Joe. Right? That same dynamic is present to a Catholic, but with this advantage, that we understand that the Church does not just consist in the biologically alive, but it's every single soul from righteous Abel to the end of time that's been united to Christ through faith and charity. And as Jesus told the Sadducees, God is not just the God of the dead, but of the living, that these souls, Abraham, Isaac, and the rest of them are all alive to him, so they are alive to us. And so the company of the faithful is including this great cloud of witnesses that the book of Hebrews talks about. And my prayer to the saints is nothing other than, please pray for me. It is a request for their prayer intercession that serves exactly the same function that the prayer in your Baptist congregation served, namely to knit the body together in charity. And so when you go to Mass, you can have a lively conception of you're in Mass, not just with the people on your left and your right in your pew, but you're going to Mass with St. Augustine. You're going to Mass with St. Thomas. You're going to Mass with St. Francis. They're all there present to you at that one holy sacrifice of the Mass. And, and it is the glory of Christ, it does not in any way diminish his intercession, that he deigns to save us through human instruments. St. Paul says we have become Christ's co-laborers as if God were making his appeal through us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, or in Colossians 1, I fill up in my own flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. Right? That this is, this is the glory of Christ's intercession, that he can work through intermediaries. You know, there was, a, there was an Islamic argument that um, that there are no physical causes, right? There are Islamic theologians that teach that there are no physical laws. There's no such thing as gravity. There's no such thing as electricity. There are no forces of mechanical motion. Um, and that everything that happens, happens through the direct and unmediated work of God. Uh, Al-Ghazali once said that fire does not burn the cotton ball. God burns the cotton ball in the presence or on the occasion of fire. It's a doctrine known as occasionalism. You can also find it in the writings of the Protestant theologian John Calvin. And the theory was that if God shares his agency with any creature, it's a kind of diminishment of his power and authority. St. Thomas Aquinas, in the Summa Contra Gentiles, attacks that view specifically. And he says there's two problems with that view. Number one... If you take that view, then it destroys our ability to have any kind of—to do induction, right? So inductive knowledge, which means all science, all natural history, all that kind of enterprise is, is utterly useless, right? Because we literally can't say that the moon is going to—you know, that, that, that the sun is going to come up tomorrow. Because there are no such things as regular processes in nature. There's just the arbitrary will of God acting spontaneously in any given moment, and it could be otherwise. And so I can't even trust my own memories, because, heck, God could have created me five minutes ago with memory implants. Like, that view that God can't work through intermediaries destroys rational knowledge and turns us all into fideists, right, who, who just have to take reality phenomenally as it is right now and assume that it could be radically otherwise tomorrow. Um, the other problem with that view, Thomas says, is that really far from ascribing greater power and glory to God, 
it really makes God into kind of a weakling who is incapable of acting through instruments. And in the human realm, imagine a king you know, or a potentate or a leader who could not act through intermediaries. And that's often what happens with, this is the, this is the paradox of the tyrant, right? It's the, the dictator to whom no one will tell the truth because they can't trust him. And so he has to just act on his own authority and agency, and he can't really entrust anything to anybody because he can't rely on them. God, being an infinitely benevolent and infinitely wise ruler, however, is capable of providentially controlling the course of human history by delegating agency to his instruments. And thus Paul says, we are Christ's co-laborers. All right, thanks for the call. 1-833-288-3986, the number to be on Open Line. Let's go now to Jamie in Kentucky. Jamie, welcome to Open Line. Thank you, and I'm new to this, and I've been a converted Catholic for 13 years, and I have a question for you. Sure, sure. So, as the Bible was written, is there any chance whatsoever that, like with Judas, that as they were writing it, that some of the scribes have been lost or forgotten, or someone said, we're not putting that in there for future reference? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, thanks. I appreciate the question. So we need to make a couple distinctions here. Did the apostles write stuff that didn't make it into the Bible? Well, Paul says so. Um, Paul claims that he wrote a letter to the Laodiceans that is not included in the canon of the Bible, right? Um, uh, Then we have, uh, uh, Paul also says, don't pay attention to those letters that claim to have been written in my name, but actually are spurious. So there are letters that were claimed that were written in the apostles' name, uh, that, and not only Paul's, that uh, that were not authentic. And there are a lot of those. So there are a lot of ancient texts that uh, that purport to be, you know, a gospel of Peter or a gospel of Judas, even or a gospel of Thomas, um, that are not canonical. So you have you, you know you have all that, that kind of stuff going on. So the Catholic position is the books that were inspired by the Holy Spirit and intended by God as Holy Scripture, are the ones that we have collected in the 73 books of the Catholic canon of the Bible. And that they are, well, they're not sufficient in the sense that we also need sacred tradition in the magisterium, but they're sufficient as Scripture. Um, And so there is zero chance that we will somehow, you know, if we uncover, for example, the letter to the Laodiceans uh, that Paul is alleged to have written, the proper response to that would be, how interesting, we have an uninspired letter from the Apostle Paul. Even if it were genuine, which there'd be no way to prove, but even if it were a genuine letter of Paul, the conclusion would be, oh, well, you know, Paul probably wrote his mother a Mother's Day card, too. If we found that, it wouldn't go in the Bible, right? It, it wasn't inspired. And the way we know that is that the criterion, one of the criterion for determining canonicity was ecclesiastical use. What, in fact, were the churches venerating as sacred writ for their liturgy? And those are the texts that God desired to be handed down by sacred tradition through posterity for the edification of the faithful. If it wasn't on that list, then God did not intend it for that purpose, regardless of who wrote it. Hope that answers the question. Number to be on the show, one eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. A few minutes left. Let's go to Sam in Boise, Idaho. Uh, Sam, welcome to Call to Communion. Ah, I said Call to Communion. Sorry, welcome to Open Line. Thank you, Dr. Anders. I have had this explained to me before, but it's never really gotten through to me, I guess. And in the Apostles' Creed, I know that we mentioned he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that that dates the time of Jesus. 
and the crucifixion. But if I recall correctly, in the Acts of the Apostles, St. Peter, St. Stephen, and the Holy Spirit, or, or the Holy Spirit speaking through them, lays Jesus' crucifixion at the feet of the Jews. So I, I don't understand why, and I'm not saying we need to blame them, but I don't understand why we always say Jesus was killed by the Romans, because I understand they had the legal authority. Yep, I understand the question. But it seems to me that it's the big so, three in the Bible. So, yeah. so first of all, the people who literally nailed the nails through his palms were Roman soldiers. Jews did not do that. Secondly, um, you know, clearly there were Jewish people at the time who called for the death of Christ. But the problem with making kind of unguarded, unqualified statement and saying, well, the Jews killed Jesus, is it—well, some Jews were complicit, to be sure. But that statement, unqualified, makes it seem like the Catholic is claiming that that the, the worldwide phenomena of Judaism as such is somehow responsible for the death of Christ. And that very false claim has been used historically to foment and, and abet really grotesque and horrific episodes of anti-Semitism. And so the Church is emphatic in denying that and saying that we do not, by any stretch of the imagination, hold world jewelry responsible for the death of Jesus. I mean, the, the the thought, to me, the thought is just absolutely absurd. I mean, what does the rabbi down the street from my house who lives in the 21st century have to do with the death of Christ? Absolutely nothing, except insofar as we're all sinners and Christ died for the sins of the world as much for my sins as anybody else's, right? Um, but that's why. We, we, we'd never want to implicate all Jews, you know, as a collective in the death of Christ, because clearly they weren't all complicit. And the apostles were all Jews, right? And, and, um, and, uh, and I'm sure many people at the time who may not have had kind thoughts about Jesus— didn't consent to his death either, right? They probably weren't very happy about the Romans slaughtering people, no matter what they thought of them politically. So yeah, we just we don't want to make that kind of claim. All right, we got just a few seconds left. Let's go to Thomas in Nashville, Tennessee. Thomas, welcome to Open Line. Total surrender to the divine providence. Does God want us to suffer and that he enjoy us suffering? And do we get purified out of yeah, that thanks. suffering? Yeah, thanks. So with respect to enjoyment, God doesn't have emotions and has no change of state. So God can't pass from like boredom to excitement or enjoyment to, you know, displeasure. I mean, that that doesn't capture the character of God. But in God's providence, he allows suffering to happen to, happen to us because he intends to bring out of it a greater good. And in, in some cases, that can be our own sanctification and redemption as we become detached from our love of creatures and can purify ourselves and, you know, be penetrated with the pure love of God and neighbor. So, anyway, thanks. It's been a blast, y'all, on Open Line. Look forward to you. Uh, let's see. I guess we'll have a um, live show on uh, on Monday. We're recorded on Call to Communion tomorrow and live Open Line tomorrow. <laughs>